0: When my friend Ryan was a young boy, someone asked him what his dad did for a living. Ryan, whose dad was a pastor and had earned a doctorate in education, matter-of-factly responded with all the authority of a six-year-old boy. My daddys I, I can make fun of his southern accent because I'm a southerner, uh, but, so I'm going to try to do it because he's got a really cute southern accent, or he does when he was a kid. My daddy's a doctor but not the kind of doctor that can help people. You heard that right. A doctor, but not the kind that helps people. Heath viewed his dad's doctorate in education as largely meaningless. Young Ryan actually teaches us a helpful lesson about understanding who can and cannot fulfill a needed job. Ryan did not want anyone to confuse his dad with a physician and expect him to provide medical care for others. If there was any kind of emergency and someone cried out, is there a doctor here? Ryan's dad would not walk up and say, well, I do have my doctorate in education. What can I do for you? It is important to know that those who we call upon are able to fulfill the tasks, the responsibilities that are needed of them. When you need a doctor, you don't want a doctor of education. You want a doctor of medicine, who knows what he or she is doing. In Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to four thirteen, we get a multifaceted introduction to Jesus, and we get answers to some of the most important questions that we could ask about Jesus. Namely, is Jesus able to accomplish our redemption? Said another way, is Jesus the Son of God who can truly redeem us, Or is he a teacher, a religious figure for sure? Fascinating nonetheless, but maybe he's not the kind of doctor that our souls need and are looking for. Thankfully, that is not the case. In fact, what we see in this passage, what I'm going to argue for you from God's Word, is that Jesus stands alone as the Son of God who is able to redeem us. Let me say this again. I encourage you to know this is the overarching idea of the sermon today. Jesus stands alone as the Son of God who is able to redeem us. Now, I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 21. And as we read God's holy inspired word, know that these are the most important wonderful words that you will hear over the next 30, 35 minutes. Beginning in verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josèk, the son of Jodah, the son of Joananu, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of excuse me, Almadem, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah. The son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mel the son of Minneh, the son of Metzatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezra, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, no, thank you. And Jesus He departed from him until an opportune time. Remember, Jesus stands alone as the Son of God who is able to redeem us. We're going to see this in three ways throughout this passage. First, in his baptism. Second, in his genealogy. And third, in the temptations that he endured in the wilderness. So first, Jesus is publicly identified as the Son of God who has come in the line of Israel. This is in his baptism in verses 21 and 22. If you recall, John the Baptist, previously in chapter 3, verse 1 to 20, was preaching the need for the people of Israel to repent of their sins, to be baptized in this repentance. You see, the people had a problem that many of us still share in in this day. They professed to worship God, they professed to serve God, and yet their hearts were, in fact, far from God. They were all appearances, but no authenticity baptism signified a repentance, a changing of heart. It signified a purification. We'll cover more on this in just a moment. So people are coming in response to John the Baptist, this last in the line of prophets that have come out of the Old Testament. For those who have come to be baptized, we find a Jewish man named Jesus. There's a number of reasons why Jesus coming to be baptized is quite interesting. Perhaps the most fascinating reason is that it raises a question for us. Many of us who perhaps know more of the story, know how the story turns out, and would say, wait, Jesus is God. God's Word tells us that Jesus never sinned. John is preaching, hey, come and be baptized and repent for the forgiveness of sins. How's that add up? Well, here's what we need to understand about Jesus coming to be baptized. Jesus did not come to be baptized in order that his sins may be atoned for or may, that he may be purified. His baptism signified his union with the people of Israel. He was united with them in experience, in identity, in ethnicity, and most importantly, in commitment to bearing their sin. And we know that his union with Israel would ultimately be fulfilled not only in the baptism that he he, uh, uh, experienced here, but in a different kind of baptism as he endured the cross at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And yet, for as strange as it is that Jesus, the sinless one, has come to be baptized, this is not the most dramatic thing about verses 21 and 22. In fact, follow along as I read it. Now, when all the people were baptized, baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. It's like Luke just says, matter-of-factly, Jesus was baptized, and then he's standing there praying, and then he says, now here's what you need to see at the end of verse 21 and verse 22. And the heavens were opened. the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Do not lose sight of this scene, All three members of the Trinity are visibly at work. The Son is being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and the Father pronouncing his love, his pleasure with his Son, Jesus. In one sense, we are examining the qualifications of Jesus to fulfill the role needed for our, our redemption. You could look at this text and say, I see the job uh, 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 posting, and I see the job qualifications. Does Jesus, this one, meet those qualifications? Well, what, John, what, what Luke is showing us is that yes, He does. And Luke is recording the eyewitness account of quite an impressive character reference for Jesus, namely God the Father. And this serves as a reminder for us of Jesus' union with us. You see, the Father looks upon Jesus and says, I am well pleased after Jesus has been baptized. But Jesus has been baptized... with Jesus, that is understood, that is experienced through faith. We see the gospel, we see Jesus' life, His death on the cross, His resurrection, and the way in which somebody becomes a Christian is by receiving this message of all that Jesus has done, receiving it in repentance and faith. And then that person is baptized as an example of their union with Christ. This is why we baptize people by immersion. We bury them under the waters, and they are raised to walk in newness of life as one who has been united with Jesus. When I was a child, I was baptized before I really understood what it meant to be baptized by immersion. I was at an event uh, that was put on by a group called the Power Team. I don't know if anyone here has ever heard of the Power Team. They would travel around. They would uh, big, muscular... Dudes and dudettes, Uh and they would they would rip phone books apart. They would break big chunks of concrete and ice, like on their chests, with sledgehammers, and they would do all these things that were really impressive to like a seven or eight year old boy, like I was. And then they would share the message of the gospel at the end of the event. Now, whether you have qualms about that kind of thing or not, that's not the point of the issue uh, with this illustration. The point of the issue is they they shared at this, and they 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 shared. Message of the gospel, and then said, Anybody want to come up here and be baptized? And I'm seeing all these guys, I'm like, I want to be like that. I'll take some of those muscles. I, you know, I was a seven-year-old boy, I flexed and my muscle went down, not up. Like um, and I'm like, well, I'll take that. So I go up and I I I am in this baptistry, and a big dude named Machine, I don't think that was his given name, but it was his name with the power team, Machine baptized me. And I still remember, I'm standing there in the baptistry, waiting to be baptized, and he says, this is my new brother, Stephen. Stephen has come to be a Christian. He baptized me. Only problem was, I came for the muscles and not for the Messiah. And I realized that later on in life. And later on in life, I recognized the need for my own repentance of my sins, and I recognized the need to be united with Christ by faith. So then I was baptized again. So basically, the first time, all I did was go swimming with machine. But what we see is that the baptism is a symbol of the unity that exists between the two parties. And now hear this, as we consider Jesus' unity with the people of Israel and subsequently his unity with us. Consider this statement by God the Father. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Pleased. This is foundational, most basic fact of Christian theology. There is one God that exists in three persons. There are not three gods or one God who is manifested in various times in three different forms, not like God, okay, at one time was the father, and then in the New Testament he came about and he was the son, and then the Holy Spirit, uh, and he indwells in us today in that form. No, there is one God who has existed in perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. And you say, Stephen, well, that blows my mind, and I say, join the club. But this is what God's Word presents to us, and we see instances, as in this case, where all three figures of the Trinity are present, all three persons of the Trinity are present. In a very real sense, the baptism of Jesus serves as a breaking forth of heaven into earth, not just in the Son of God, the true Israel being revealed in Jesus, but there's a breaking forth of heaven into earth as we see and we hear and we know of God through Jesus and of the many things that are wonderful about this, one of the great wonders of this event is that, is, is that the same love that the Father has for the Son that is testified here is ours through faith in Jesus. You see, because Jesus has come and been united with us and endured this baptism and the baptism in our place on the cross for our sins, We are united with Him in the experience of the love of God. And we recognize that God's love does not depend on us or on our loveliness before God, but His love rests in His disposition of love rooted in the perfect triune love of God between the Father, Son, and Spirit that that reaches all the way back to eternity past. Do Do you see the wonder of that? And here's why that deep theology is so good. This deep theology of the eternal love of God between the Father, between the Son, between the Spirit, all for one another in perfect love and harmony. We need this deep theology of the profoundly deep love of God because we have deep hearts that so desperately need and lack for love. In this outbreaking of the heavenly wonder of the love of God for His Son, we are struck by how often our love for Jesus is more distant and not so delightful. But we see that in Jesus, the keys of God's love are are able to unlock the difficult locks of our own hearts. What is happening here is that in in one sense, on Jesus' first official day on the job, God the Father is the witness testifying of the loveliness and pleasure of knowing God the Son, Jesus Christ. And the Father is the first witness inviting you and I to come and find our everlasting delight in Him. So Jesus is the one who sees the failures of His people. In this instance, the people of Israel who are being called to repent and be baptized. And if the Gospel of Luke has these instances of him stepping up to the plate, stepping up to the issue to meet his people where they are. The first account being his birth and coming to this ugly, messy earth in order that he might dwell with us. The second account is in his baptism. Showing his spiritual union with those who need new birth. So, Jesus is publicly proclaimed as the Son of God in the line of Israel. Secondly, Jesus is shown to be the Son of God descended from Adam. So, He is in the, line, the spiritual line of Israel, and now He's in the genealogical line of Adam. And you see that with this long genealogy again. Let me read it. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to read it again. Some of you are like, oh, no. Some of you are like, oh, no, I can't do that again. And others of you are like, oh, let's see them try that again. I think he got lucky the first time. Remember, we're examining the question. We're examining the idea of, is Jesus up for this task as the Son of God, our Redeemer? We have a great need. We need a great doctor. But he must meet the qualifications. And so now we get this genealogy. Genealogies in our Bibles. For as difficult as they are to read through they are not accidents dear church family. They are not buzzkills that are put in stories as a way of breaking up the flow. You might would read through this one if you were to read Luke 3 and then transition right into Luke 4 and you would say why in the world is that genealogy there? But this is why, because previously with the baptism, he's showing the union with Israel. Now he's showing if Jesus is going to be the Son of God, capable and up to the task, he has to show his union with man. He has to show us that he's fully human. And this is why it traces from Jesus all the way back to Adam goes through the line of the king of David, the king of Israel, through whom a greater king would come. He's also a son of Abraham, the great patriarch, through whom God promised to bless the people of Israel with a heritage as vast, as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And what we see is that this heritage, this, this line of people, it had it, its fits and follies. It had its ups and downs. It had its scoundrels and scallywags. I just made that up on the fly. That was a pretty good one. It had, its, it, it, it had its sinners and saints. Yet what we see in this line is two things. Jesus is perfectly, entirely human, just as much as you and I are. And we'll get to this in just a moment. But it also shows us kind of indirectly and in tying into this history with the people of Israel that Jesus has come of. It shows us the story of the Old Testament is the story of God's faithfulness to His people. And this is just one more example of it that God has sent His Son from His people. And we must see this Jesus as entirely human, Because we know what it means to be sons and daughters of Adam. We know the toil and the calamity of the human life. We know what it means for our stomachs to rumble in hunger. We know what it means for our hearts to grieve in pain. We know what it means for our bodies to be sick with the flu, to fight cancer, to suffer unexplainable, un- uh, unbelievable loss. And we know what it means to face and deal with and wrestle over the sins of our own hearts. And to live in this human tent, this human body yearning for relief from the burdens and the toils and the anxieties that we carry. And we come upon this genealogy. And we recognize that as a son of Adam, Jesus is fully human. He did not sin. But He is fully human. And He must be everything that we are as humans, minus the sin. Jesus' stomach rumbled with hunger. Jesus' body ached with the flu. Jesus had caught colds. Jesus yearned with grief at the loss of family and loved ones. He was not an imposter. He was not an alien wearing a human mask and human body trying to pull one over on us. No, when we consider our our lot as human beings with tired hearts, with tired bodies, we are crying out for redemption, for rescue, for new life. And here we see Jesus who has come, who has come from the line of Adam, but He has come to be the true and better Adam, just as He has come to be the true and better Israel. He has come as the one who will reverse the curse of sin on humanity. He will inaugurate a new kingdom and a new understanding of our humanity as ones who find redemption in Him. He will come as one who invites us all to go from being ones born of Adam in this sinful lot we carry, in this body of burdens, in this this life that is hard and full of toil, to ones who still experience this but who have hearts that have been born anew of the second Adam. And who know that one day we will experience a resurrection that will make all of the agonies of this life nothing but distant memories. Faint echoes of a previous life drowned out by the glory of the second Adam who reigns over His people. We will no longer feel the pain, the shame, of body image anxiety. We will no longer feel the hurt of things done to our bodies or to our hearts. Ultimately, we will no longer feel the weight of sin upon our mortal bodies because a true and better Adam has arrived. The first Adam was exiled from the garden of God's good and perfect presence because of his sin. The second Adam, Jesus, the true and better Adam, will be the means by which we re-enter into the garden of God's perfect presence because this Adam has come to us. And He has come to us from the presence of God to meet us in the wilderness of this world. So Jesus is the Son of God who has come from the line of Israel. He is the Son of God who is human and has come from the line of Adam. And now thirdly, we see that Jesus is the Son of God who is faithfully triumphant over Satan. This is in verses 1-13 to of chapter 4. He is going to enter into the wilderness where his identity with both Israel and Adam, his union with them, will be put to to the test in a way that will prove his credibility as well as his capability to accomplish all the work that has been set before him. There are three tests in verses 1 through 13, three temptations that Jesus faces. The first, as Jesus is very hungry, is to turn a stone into bread. Bread. The second temptation is not to bow to Satan to receive the kingdoms of the earth. And the third is to not get, put God to the test to save his life. Let's walk through these. Look at the first temptation in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, one thing you will note as we make our way through these temptations, as we carefully navigate them, as we examine them closely, is that they have the appearance of one thing, but then there's a deeper temptation that exists under the surface. And this is how it works with our hearts even today. We face temptation to sin, but that temptation to sin is actually not in so much a, 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 the appearance of what lies before us, a, a, a decision that we must make, but it is a question in regards to our hearts and where our trust lies. And so the first temptation features something quite understandable to many of us. You have a very hungry Jesus being told, Hey, you're Jesus. You're powerful. You're God, right? Turn this stone to bread and eat. Why wouldn't you eat? You're hungry. For anyone that thinks the Bible does not relate to us in our day and age or does not speak to us, I think these verses clearly show that it does. It tells us Jesus didn't eat for 40 days, and when those days were ended, he was hungry. That's an understatement, is it not? I get hungry after 40 minutes much less 40 days. Jesus has been walking through this fast, this great intense fast. And the temptation here is not to eat bread. The temptation here is to disbelieve God, his Father. And how do we understand this? This is very important for us to grasp. Go back and look at verse 1. Go back and look at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. And this is something that if we don't carefully notice it, we could just read it right over and gloss over it. Look at this. And he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Do you see? It wasn't Satan that took Jesus out to the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit of God. And you say, well, why would that be so? This purpose for Jesus going out into the wilderness was that He might prove Himself to be the Son of God greater than Adam. The Son of God greater than Israel. Prevailing over sin and temptation where Adam and Israel did not. Remember, Adam and Eve, what were they? They were tempted to satisfy their hunger while in the garden by disobeying the Word of the Lord. And this is what they did. They disobeyed God and Israel was tempted to see if they would trust God to provide for them while they wandered in the wilderness, awaiting entry into the promised land. They grumbled against God for what? Thinking, we're going to walk around this, this, this wilderness and we are going to starve. They did not believe the Word of God. Adam and Eve did not believe the Word of God. Jesus applied the Word of God to His temptation. Israel did not trust that God would provide for them but grumbled against God and Jesus applied the word of God to his temptation. Jesus doesn't show us or Jesus doesn't show us trusting God for our food. Jesus shows us how to perfectly rest in the will and the timing of God who has led him into the wilderness. And maybe that is where you find yourself today. Maybe you are in a metaphorical wilderness of the soul. And you are saying to yourself, I I, I don't know how to trust God in the midst of this. Up seems down, left seems right, I am confused, I am disoriented, and I don't know where God is. What Jesus is showing us is two things. He is showing us that we can trust God in the wilderness, namely we can trust Him in His Word. But secondly, and we're going to get more into the Word in just a moment, but secondly, Jesus is showing us That we have Him, our great high priest, who has also walked through the wilderness. Therefore, we can cry out to Him, not in a manner, God's being unfair, Jesus, will you help me? But in a manner that says, Jesus, you have trusted the Father. By your mercy, would you work within my heart a trust for Him where I am prone to distrust. We don't need bread in the wilderness. We need hearts that are tempted to chase after the bread that will be our destruction. We need hearts that are turned to Christ who has withstood this temptation. So, these three tests that we see here The second temptation features the devil taking Jesus up on a mountain, promising Him all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, this is interesting. You see in a few places in Scripture where Satan seems to exhibit a very real power in the world. You remember Job. Satan had power to wreck and and bring havoc and even death upon Job and his family. And Satan seems to have this power over the kingdoms of the earth, And yet it is under the authority of God in ways in which are quite mysterious. But verse 5 tells us, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Do you see how Satan offers Jesus this incredible power, this preeminence, this rule over all the kingdoms of the earth? And yet, the wonder of this exchange is in Jesus' response. Jesus answered him in verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Throughout the gospel of Luke, there's a continual theme of God humbling those who are exalted and exalting the humble. Satan tries to usurp that. He throws the course of Jesus' ministry into disarray as he offers him a crown and the rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. If only he will bow the knee and worship the devil. That sounds quite appealing if I'm putting myself in Jesus' shoes. The worship, the adoration of all the kingdoms of the earth, and I don't have to go endure the cross. And as we consider the humanity of Jesus, we must consider the, tempta- the, 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 the high stakes of such a temptation. That in fact, these stakes could not have been higher. If Jesus gives in here, in verse 8, there would be no cross for you and for me. He would just streamline right past it in pursuit of the kingdoms of the earth and their adoration. And we would not be sons and daughters of God. Yet what Jesus did not give in he revealed something absolutely stunning. Greater than all the kingdoms of the earth is the everlasting joy and wonder of worshiping God. This life is not about acquire, 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 or build, 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 lay hold of your own kingdom. Your life has been created for a far greater purpose than the kingdoms of this earth. And That purpose is the worship of God. Jesus shows us in the first temptation that we live by the Word of God, not by the desires of our bodies even when we are uh, uh, deathly hungry. Jesus shows us in the second temptation that we live for the worship of God. So we live by the Word of God, we live for the worship of God, not for 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 the glories of the kingdoms of this earth or the pleasures of of, of the promises that the enemy might offer our souls. And now in the third temptation, and this one may seem a little strange, but you'll see the majesty of it in a moment, he shows us one more way in which we live. Verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. These are quotes directly out of Psalm 91. Satan is quoting Scripture, as he did in the second temptation, with Jesus. There's a brief implication here, we're not going to spend too long on it, but there is a way to misuse and to 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 abuse Scripture in the care of and in the and and, 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 and in the, the perceived need of our hearts that comes directly from the pit of hell. But what Jesus shows us is A is in one sense how to rightly understand and apply Scripture, but B in another sense how it shows us how He is exalted as the Son of God whom we need. So remember, there's the appearance of the temptation. Hey, throw yourself off from here. God will catch you. God won't let anything happen to you. You're the Son of God. The issue at play is not Jesus falling off the temple. The issue at play is whether or not he trusts God and will put him to the test. But here's the wonder of this. Lock in with me on this. Jesus says to him in verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Lock in with me on this. Jesus does not put the Father to the test in jumping off the temple. But Jesus actually shows that God cares for His people, His servants, in a way in which He would endure a future test where God would not catch Him from falling. But in fact, He would catch us by virtue of Jesus' death on the cross. Look at this. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, in total surrender to God here. And then see verse 13, And when the devil had ended every temptation, He departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus has shown himself to pass the test, to be the perfect son of God who submits to God alone, who as verse 4 says, uh, he submits to God alone, who verse 8 shows us he worshiped God alone, and verse 12 shows us he trusts God alone. These 40 days in the wilderness signify both Adam in the garden forsaking God and Israel in the wilderness not trusting God and Jesus looking at Israel and Adam united with both and united with us and showing Himself the entirely sufficient Son of God. Do you see that? He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Israel. And now he has set off, set apart, been set apart and set his eyes towards the work that God, his Father, would have for him. But here's what we must note as we conclude. Verse 13 tells us, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Remember, Jesus did not put the Father to the test. Rather, He trusted Himself to the will of the Father. That opportune time that Satan would find would be the time when he would lead the charge in the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God. And what we see here is we do not look at Jesus and say, hey, He's impressive in His own right. But is He up for the task? What we see is that He is the Son of God who is able to redeem us, who is united with us in perfect love and full commitment. We see it here, and we're going to see it with every step He takes, with every word He utters until He tells us on the cross this work of our Redemption is finished. That is your hope, dear Christian. That is our hope, dear church. Jesus stands alone as the Son of God who is able to redeem us.